morning, Providence. Let us begin with a word of prayer. Father, there are so many reasons to to give you praise and thanks this morning. Thank you that you have united us together by the blood of Christ. Formerly, sinners estranged from you, hating you and hating one another, but because of what you have done through the Lord Jesus Christ, you have united us together as saints in one body. Christ is our head such that we have new hearts that desire to love you and one another. It's an amazing thing. And it's uh, something of an oddity, given what we know of human nature, that we would be gathered together to worship something other than ourselves this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you have freed us from slavery to sin and self-worship so that we might see you rightly and give you the worship that you deserve. We thank you that we have brothers and sisters across the globe who are doing the same thing this morning. And we ask, Father, that as we open our Bibles now, that you would grant us to see anew truths that we've already sung about this morning, that the gospel is true and that our lives should be seen in the context of that gospel, and that the gospel should be seen in the context of what it does and has done for us. Thank you for the privilege of what we're about to do. We do it with sober minds and hearts because we understand that we cannot understand these things without your help. And so we pray for that help. May your Holy Spirit minister to us. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. This morning we'll be considering the last section of chapter 14, beginning in verse 53, beginning in verse 53. For those of you who have not been here in recent weeks, or perhaps this is your first week, we are, we're in the final, the final hours of the Lord Jesus' life here in this narrative. Jesus has been anointed for burial beforehand. He has been betrayed by Judas. He shared the Passover with his disciples. He has been abandoned by his disciples. That's where we find ourselves as we pick up in verse 53. Let's all stand together and I'll read out loud verse 53 through the end of the chapter. Mark 14 beginning in verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. 
for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priests stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And they went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. You may be seated. If this was the last scene recorded by Scripture, the last scene of Peter's life recorded by Scripture, we, we might conclude that his is one of the great tragedies in salvation history. He was the first to make the good confession of Jesus as Lord back in chapter 8. That you are the Christ. He left all to follow the Lord Jesus. He was pregnant present at the Lord's transfiguration, seeing the Lord in all His glory, but it has now come to this. His faith has been put on trial and found empty. And almost certainly in Peter's mind, this was the last scene, the last scene of any consequence. What have I done? I am ruined. I have done irreparable harm to my own estate. But of course, we know that this is not the last scene, praise God. It's not the last scene because of the scene intertwined with it by Mark. Mark has intertwined this trial of Peter's faith with Jesus' trial. 
And Peter doesn't understand that at the time what we are intended to understand, which is that while in Peter's trial everything has gone horribly wrong, in Jesus' trial everything has gone horribly right. What Jesus is enduring and is about to endure is awful and yet absolutely necessary in order to free his people from the horrific mess of their sin, people like Peter and people like us. All people who repent and trust in Him. And all of these things happening to Jesus are taking place in accordance with the Old Testament Scriptures and in accordance with Jesus' own predictions. So Mark sets side by side for us these two trials. And we'll see that they're not just side by side, but they're They are intertwined, Jesus' trial and Peter's trial. The contrast is intentional that we might see and understand that Jesus is perfectly faithful in our utter failure. You and I have in the past, perhaps currently, likely in the future, may find ourselves rocked by sinful failure. And in the self-deception of that sin, we begin to think hopeless thoughts like, what have I done? I am, I am ruined. I have done irreparable harm to my estate. As if that trial of faith and subsequent failure is the final definitive scene of our own existence. But it is not so. We have trials that sometimes we fail, but this text would have us to believe that there is forgiveness and restoration for us because Jesus, when tried, He endured and did not fail. And His success entitles Him to cover us with His righteousness, to atone for our sin, ensuring that our last scene is an eternally glorious one. So as we walk through the text this morning, we'll be considering these two trials. First of all, the trial of Jesus. And then we'll look to Peter's, seeing some parallels between the two and and some contrasts. Now the first detail to note about Jesus' trial is that he was falsely accused. And of course we see that in those first few verses, verse 53 through verse 59, we won't read it all again, but you can look through, just scan through there, verses 53 through 59, we see Jesus being falsely accused. But I would call your attention, before we get deeply into the fact that Jesus was falsely accused, I would call your attention to verse 54. Verse 54 is planted there so that we have Peter in the back of our minds, even as we are being walked through Jesus' trial. If you were to read straight through Verse 53, skip over verse 54 and go straight to verse 55, you'd find it's a, very, it's a very smooth transition. Verse 53 and verse 55 go together. It's one scene. Verse 54 inserts Peter into the story of Jesus' trial so that when we get to Peter's trial, we remember we're supposed to associate them with one another. It's very similar to the sandwich technique that we've seen Mark using earlier in the book. Verse 54 is a signal in the text that Peter's trial is not to be understood by itself and neither is Jesus' trial to be understood by itself. And your trial of faith 
is not to be understood by itself outside the context of Jesus' trial. Neither is Jesus' trial to be understood outside the context of what it accomplishes for His people, including you. It's a mistake that we often make. We divorce the two. We divorce, we divorce our trials of faith and those failures. We divorce them from Jesus' trial and His success. But we should always, as we are as we are thinking through the gospel, singing through the gospel, and these, these songs that we've sung this morning are so good at doing this for us, but we should be thinking this consciously. We should be asking ourselves, what import do these gospel truths have for me? When we ask that question, we should be led to think and say things like, oh yes, the blood of Jesus speaks for me. Gospel does not merely consist of of ancient historical events or dry theological concepts, but it is work that God accomplished through Jesus Christ for you and for me. Conversely, my trial of faith, your trial of faith, ought never be pondered outside the context of Jesus' glorious beatdown of sin and death. What we need more than anything when our faith is flagging is to look to His success in the trial of the passion and what it accomplishes for us. When we don't do that, when we look only at our circumstances, divorced from the context of what Christ has done, it usually leads toward thoughts like, it's over, I can't, I'm ruined, this is the final scene. But Mark, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he has interlocked Jesus' trial with Peter's. We need to keep that in mind as we walk through Jesus' trial here. Jesus' trial is not just about Jesus, what Jesus is doing. It is, but what is it accomplishing for His people? That's the only reason that Jesus is doing this. Jesus has nothing to prove. It is accomplishing something for Peter. It's accomplishing something for us. Now, Jesus' trial is unique in that it is not a trial to inquire into the guilt or innocence of the accused. Because if you look at verse 55, you see that it indicates that this trial is about one thing. It is about finding a reason to condemn Jesus to death. That is, they have started with the verdict. And now they're working their way backwards. He's worthy of death. Now let's get some evidence in here. But they've found none, verse 55 tells us. And verses 56 through 59 explain that phenomenon. The fact that they have not found any evidence against him. It's not that they can't find any testimony. Verse 56 says that many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Now why is that a problem? It's a problem because Deuteronomy 17.6 requires that a person can only be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. That is, corroborating witnesses. A person shall never be put to death on the evidence of one witness. So they don't just need witnesses. They need witnesses, two or more, saying the same thing. Now, getting two people to testify consistently to the same crime is not difficult if it happened. But if it didn't happen, well, it's hard to get two people to tell the same lie. And that's the issue that the 
the chief priests are have, having here. They've got people willing to bear false witness. They've got plenty of people willing to break the ninth commandment, but none of their lies match up. By the way, it's intriguing that they held to this multiple witness thing, but they didn't hold to Deuteronomy 19.18. Deuteronomy 19.18 requires that a false witness should receive the penalty faced by the accused. So they're selectively applying the law of Moses here. And that might move us to ask, why then this whole charade? If they want to kill him and they're willing to overlook certain parts of the law of Moses to do it, why have a trial at all? Well, it's likely because of the people. Remember that the Jewish leaders fear the people. They're doing this at night because if they were to do it during the daytime, the people would have a fit. This has been mentioned numerous times by Mark. Jesus is very popular with the people. So the Jewish leaders, they need to be able to go to the crowds, the people, and say, we have these charges against him corroborated by multiple witnesses. And Mark gives us an example of one of the lies told about Jesus in verse 58. We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple that's made with hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. Now some of us may may be thinking, well, didn't Jesus actually say that one? Isn't that one actually true? Actually, it isn't. And he did say something close, but I won't spoil the fun for you. Find the references yourself and compare them. It's not here in Mark. I will tell you that much. Look at the other Gospels. Find what Jesus actually did say. Compare it to this and you'll find that you'll, you'll, you'll essentially see why they can't find two people saying the same thing on this issue. The point being made is that Jesus didn't do anything. You've got a council here full of people who want to kill Jesus so bad they can taste it. And with all their resources, they can't come up with anything legitimate against him. So he has to be falsely accused. Secondly, we find that Jesus did not defend himself. He did not defend himself. Verse 60 Again, the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and gave no answer. So the high priest turns to Jesus to give him an opportunity to defend himself. He shouldn't have done that. The high priest should not have done that. Rather, he should have condemned these false witnesses, released Jesus, condemning the false witnesses. But as we've no- noted They are working backward from a predetermined verdict. Jesus is guilty. We just have to find a way to prove it. Think about how strong is the impulse to defend self. It's a really strong impulse. This is one of the ways that I find myself so unlike Jesus. I've so many times defended myself with with sinful harshness and arrogance even in times where there was, there was likely at least a twinge of truth to the accusation. Jesus is, is perfectly innocent of everything, yet He does not open His mouth. And there are so many things that Jesus could have said as He is being falsely accused. Never said that, never did that. That never happened. Or he could have just have said after the whole thing, none of your witnesses agree, 
Therefore, they should be condemned. But many of you, I'm sure, have thought of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 7 reads this way. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. It has been written long before the incarnation that this is how the Messiah would handle himself when falsely accused. He would not open his mouth. Now, is it the case that that Jesus remained silent here merely to fulfill Isaiah 53.7. I would suggest to you that it is not merely to fulfill that Scripture, but it is that Jesus has read the rest of Isaiah 53. And He knows that the trial that Peter is about to experience is a trial that Peter is going to fail. And He knows about the many trials that you and I have failed and will fail. And if he opens his mouth, defending himself and receiving an acquittal, then the rest of Isaiah 53 does not happen, including Yahweh placing on him the the iniquities of us all, making many to be counted righteous. And so where where Peter, where I, where, where we have so arrogantly defended ourselves, Jesus remained silent so that he might take our place. Which leads to a third detail to note in Jesus' trial. Jesus was unjustly condemned. He was unjustly condemned. If we were to continue in verse 61, we find, And the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Now, other gospel writers add a detail here that seems to answer why Jesus would open his mouth at this point after being silent previously. Mark does not give us that detail. So, the question, why does Jesus now answer, does not seem to be pertinent to Mark's point. So I'm not going to address that question. We're simply informed that Jesus now says, I am. I am who you have accused me of being. I am who you have asked me that I am. I am the Son of the Blessed. I am the Messiah. We'll talk more about verse 62 shortly. But just note that this confession by Jesus, this that He is indeed the Messiah, the Son of the Beloved, or the Son of God, this is all that the high priest needs now. And in, in this court setting, the tearing of a robe, this is just a dramatic gesture indicating a verdict of Blasphemy. So the high priest, by tearing his garments, he is saying to everyone, the high priest is saying to everyone, I say he's committed blasphemy right there. We don't need any more witnesses. What do you say? So the high priest already, already cast his vote. And so now they, they all cast their votes and they are out of this tight spot then that was created by these disparate witnesses. They've got a verdict now they can take to the crowd. Now, why was this blasphemy? 
there are different thoughts on this, and whole books have been written on that issue. It's tied to the passages that Jesus alludes to as he's answering the high priest's question. We'll get to that in a moment as well. Just hang on a second. The problem, though, is that their evaluation, the council's evaluation, leaves no room for the possibility that Jesus actually is the Messiah, the Son of God, in which case it wouldn't be blasphemy, but rather glorious, blessed truth. And and really, they have no excuse for believing otherwise, given the nature of Jesus' ministry. The reality is that they simply do not want to submit to Jesus. That's what this whole thing is about. They don't want to submit to Him They want him out of the way, and so they are going to kill him. And so next we find that Jesus suffered. Jesus suffered. Some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. I was reading the book of Numbers this week devotionally and was reminded that to be spat upon is to be rendered unclean according to the law of Moses. So, Jesus would have been considered ritually unclean. For seven days, He technically should have been sent outside the city in this state of ceremonial impurity. We'll find that within a few hours, He will be sent outside the city. But not to wait for seven days, it'll be to be crucified. The covering of his face, striking him, telling him to prophesy. This is all just a cruel, mocking game. Oh, you're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. Well, then you know everything. We'll we'll hit you and you tell us who's done it. There may also be a connection here to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 verse 3 reads, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. It could be a connection there. At any rate, Jesus is being mocked, beaten, and scorned already. Jesus is being treated like the criminal that he isn't. If we go back to verse 62, we find that Jesus will be vindicated. Jesus will be vindicated. Look at verse 62 again. This is Jesus' answer to the high priest again when the high priest asked, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Beloved? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And when Jesus answered the high priest, he did so using a couple of significant Old Testament texts. One is Psalm 110. I won't read that whole psalm. I'll just read the first couple of verses. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until... I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Now remember that sometimes when Jesus or the apostles, when they quote an Old Testament text or allude to it, they are not merely quoting a phrase, but they are importing a context. Psalm 110 is about the messianic king who rules over his enemies and brings judgment upon the world. The other passage that Jesus alludes to was read for us this morning by Pastor John. It's Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Let me read those verses to you again. 
I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, why might these particular allusions be upsetting to this council? Because Jesus is saying, You will see that I have been right all of this time. You will see. I am the Messianic King, and I am going to bring judgment upon the nations. You have not followed me in faith in this life, so when I return again to be vindicated by the Ancient of Days, I will come as your judge, and I will rule over all the nations. You will see. You think you're getting rid of me, but this is not the last scene. This is not the last scene. Jesus will suffer and die for the sins of His people. We're going to see that in Mark. We're going to see Him rise from the dead. If we were to continue in the Gospels or turn over to the book of Acts, we would see Him ascend to the Father. And the great hope of the Christian is Christ returning in glorious power one day with authority for for all to see. So, Jesus is going to be vindicated. And we have now looked at one trial. Jesus has been faithful to the Father's plan. In one sense, He has been condemned for crimes He didn't commit. In another sense, He has been vindicated before God as flawlessly and sinlessly navigating these false accusations and mistreatment in this trial. In the guilty verdict of the council, Jesus showed Himself to be faithful before God. So one trial down now the trial of Peter. And whereas Jesus was falsely accused, we find that Peter was rightfully accused. Verse 66, Peter was rightfully accused. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. Now, there are numerous contrasts between Jesus' trial and And Peter's, Jesus is accused of blasphemy, which is an actual sin, which he did not commit. Peter is accused of discipleship, a virtue which he did commit, however imperfectly. And this life of discipleship, which is a godly pursuit in the eyes of God, is now implied to be an accusation of wrongdoing in the eyes of this servant girl because of who Jesus is has just been declared to be by the council. It's possible that all those outside have heard the goings-on in in Jesus' trial, and so in their minds now, anyone associated with Jesus is then guilty by association. It's a virtual certainty that that's the calculation that Peter has made. There's no other reason to deny Jesus. So he's thinking, okay, Jesus is Jesus, and He's just been condemned. If I admit to being with Him, being one of His I may be condemned too. And of course, this is precisely how Jesus has characterized discipleship. Jesus has told His disciples and many others that taking up your cross and following Me, that is what it means to be a disciple. 
must be prepared to follow Christ in suffering. And whereas Peter did leave everything behind there at the Sea of Galilee to follow Jesus, and though he swore that he was ready to die with Jesus at this moment, the call to do that is more than he can bear. And so, unlike Jesus who did not defend himself, Peter vehemently denied. Peter vehemently denied. Verse 68. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you're a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And there's a sense in which Peter is actually undergoing two trials simultaneously. The servant girl is accusing him of being a disciple. But we have this other voice casting a witness, bearing a witness against Peter. The rooster is accusing him of being a denier. And the rooster has just testified, calling our attention back to earlier in the chapter regarding what Jesus predicted. What testimony is Peter listening to? He is listening to the accusations of the, of the people. He is not listening to the rooster because he is intent only to convince this girl that he is not a disciple. And we find as, as the accusations continue, the denials escalate. Compare again Jesus' trial with, with Peter's. Jesus is being faithful while being tried by this entire council. All, the, the, all of the power brokers in the Jewish nation, they are in that room and in that arena, under that pressure. Jesus is faithful, not defending Himself, and then only telling the truth that would certainly get Him killed. Just amazing faithfulness and courage. But by the middle of verse 70, Peter has been cowed twice by a girl. And when the bystanders join in, certainly you're one of them for you are a Galilean. Well, now we have, we have all the witnesses that we need in Peter's trial. Remember, they couldn't find two witnesses to corroborate the lies that were being told about Jesus. Now we have, we have plenty of witnesses to corroborate what's being said about Peter. You have multiple people saying the same thing about Peter. And in response to that true testimony, that Peter has been with Jesus, that he is one of them, that he belongs to Christ. In response to that, Peter goes out of his mind in denial, invoking a curse on himself. And the idea is, what, what, what Mark is, is telling us here by this invoking of curses, that Peter is saying, may I be condemned if I'm lying. And then he lies, saying, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And that sets up another contrast. Whereas Jesus was unjustly condemned, Peter was justly condemned. Verse 72. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. You know, the irony couldn't be thicker if this was a Shakespearean tragedy. 
He calls down a curse on himself in order to save his own skin and then almost immediately receives that condemnation. Peter has been on trial, multiple witnesses testifying to the same thing. You were with Christ and now we have a second testimony from the rooster. You are a denier. Guilty. And so he's condemned by the memory of Christ's prediction. He's he's condemned by his sin, by his own conscience and guilty before God. And he is in desperate need of atonement. So we find then a similarity between these two trials Just as Jesus suffered, so also we find that Peter suffered. Verse 72, and he broke down and wept. So that assault of conscience, the assault of his true sense of guilt. We know from elsewhere in the Scriptures, the assault of the enemy. All of it leads to emotional suffering in that moment. What have I done? I'm ruined. I have done irreparable harm to my own spiritual estate. That that, that Peter broke down here indicates just a a wild physical demonstration of of grief. He's overcome with, with emotion and None of us have, have, have been in a situation precisely like Peter's, but there are many Peter-like scenarios in our lives where by words or by works, we deny Jesus. Think of one, one common scenario. Parents facing the reality in later years didn't follow the Lord with gusto in front of my kids. I didn't lead them spiritually. I didn't show them what it means to love a spouse well. I didn't raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I didn't this. I didn't that. And they are tempted to think it's ruined. And this is the last definitive scene. There's also that pervasive and multifaceted scenario of sexual sin. Individuals that open the door to something that they shouldn't and seemingly, before they know it, it it's taken over their life. And now their, their relationships, their thinking, and even their bodies are affected and they, they have no clue if there is any way to clean up the mess. And it it seems as if this is the last scene. This is definitive. There's also that scenario that's just what we might call just broad, poor stewardship that results results in a wasted life. You, You reach a certain age, and it doesn't have to be that old. Or you realize... You've just squandered years. There's there's nothing to show for it. Forget financially. There's nothing to show for the kingdom. You've made no disciples. You are a disciple called to make disciples, and you've made none. And it seems like you have completely failed 
it is too late. I've wasted it, and that's all there is. It's over, and this is, this is definitive. This is the final scene. You know, there are any number of ways, any number of ways that our faith is put on trial and found wanting. We failed the Lord, denied Him by our words and by our works. But remember, remember that Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he has intentionally entwined these two trials together. And we are intended, because of that, to remember this is not the final scene. This is not the final scene. Remember one thing that I noted about Jesus' trial earlier. Why was this not the final scene about Jesus' trial? Because of that answer that he gave to the council, indicating that he would be vindicated. If you, if you look through Peter's trial, there's not a corresponding element here. Jesus is going to be vindicated. There's nothing like that in Peter's. Why might that be? Well, I would suggest to you that because they are intertwined, Jesus' vindication is Peter's vindication. If that doesn't satisfy us, we do have something later in Mark to indicate to us that Peter will be redeemed. That's the final, that's the final blank in your notes. Peter will be redeemed. When Jesus told the disciples earlier in, in chapter 14, verse 27, that they would all fall away, He continued by saying, but after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. That was, that was a gracious indication that their falling away, their failure would not be the end of the story. But what if Peter? Is Peter going to be the outlier in that group? Since his, since his sin was just so egregious. Well, let's turn over to Mark 16. Mark 16. This is after Jesus' resurrection. The women go to the tomb and look with me at chapter 16, verse 5. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, isn't that kind? Just amazing kindness. Peter commits this outlandish, outstanding sin. And he gets, he gets this special note here. Tell Peter specifically. Tell Peter specifically. Make sure Peter knows. Of all the eleven, make sure Peter knows. Why is that? Because for those who trust in Christ, the dark night of denial is not the final scene. It's not the final scene because of what Christ did on the cross and because He was raised from the dead. So full and so sufficient is the righteous life and atoning death of Christ that He overwhelms the sin of the repentant in forgiveness. 
Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Not that, as Paul writes in Romans 5 and 6, that that we should continue in sin so that grace abounds, but 1 John 2, if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sin. Christ has been vindicated. He now sits at the right hand of the Father. He intercedes for us, and in our failure, He brings restoration. He makes all things new. And so your, your failure doesn't have to be the end of the story. That doesn't mean that our failures may not have lasting temporal consequences. But because of the work of Christ on the cross, we are not condemned. And because of the work of Christ in us even now, the indwelling Holy Spirit and His power at work in us, because of that, we can be transformed into the likeness of Christ so that going forward, that was not the last scene. There is another day. And you, you may wonder, perhaps, look, I, I know that I'm forgiven, but how can these gospel truths be practically applied to this current mess that I'm in so as to bring a new day? How can things actually be better? How can relationships that I've damaged be repaired? How can my sin habits be killed? How can things change going forward given that these gospel truths are true? I'm glad you asked. We have, we have, a, people, we have a team of people here at Providence who are trained to help people do exactly that. People who, who know how to take the gospel of Jesus Christ and all of the scriptures and apply them to people's lives, help them apply them to their own lives and to walk in faithfulness. They know how to bring the scriptures to bear on the issues of life and help people to live in the victorious light of a vindicated Christ. Now, how do you talk to one of these people? Well, if you go to our website and you click on our signups page, there are there are, of course, uh, links at the top. Click on, click on the sign-ups page, and you'll see a, an icon that says Coffee with a Counselor. Click on Coffee with a Counselor, and there you can just put your, you can put your name, your email address, and you don't have to put anything else. But you can give us a little bit of information about what your question is, what you need help with. If you do that, we may be a little more accurate in, in how we pair you up with someone. If you're a woman, we'll connect you with a woman for coffee. If you're a man, with a, with a man. And you can just sit down and share your story with this person. And it may be the case that on one meeting, in one meeting over coffee, there is sufficient time to answer your question and the gospel is applied, the scriptures are applied to that issue and, and you, the light bulb comes on you realize, okay, here's what I need to do to walk in light of the vindication of Christ in my circumstances. It may be, though, it may be that you, you realize after having coffee with this counselor that you need, you need to meet with them a couple of times or a few times. But you can decide that together. The key is that because of Christ's work, your failure is not the final scene. This was not Peter's final scene. I, I invite you today, 
read the book of Acts, and then go read First and Second Peter and find out this is not the final scene. And your current failure does not have to be the final scene. Learning to live that way, learning to live in the truth that my failure is not my final scene, that may require some help, and we want to give you that help. But you've got to ask for it. So get on the website, click on Coffee for a Counselor, and we will help you. Those of you who have followed Christ for many years, isn't it a wonderful thing what Jesus has done for us? Those of you who have never followed Christ, just understand that outside of of union with Christ, which comes to us by repenting of our sin and trusting in Him, outside of Christ, your failures... Your sins, your rebellion against God, those are what what we might call the penultimate scene of your life. They're the second to last scene. The last scene will be judgment day when you receive what we all deserve, which is the eternal wrath of Almighty God. So please hear me today. Turn to Christ. His death and resurrection is sufficient to pay the debt that you owe to God because of all of the sin that you've committed against Him. Turn to Christ today. Don't leave here without settling this with God. Repent of your sin. Trust in Jesus. If you have any questions about that, please talk to somebody here. There are people all around you who can answer questions that you might have. I would love to talk to you. Any of the other elders could talk. Our deacons Please talk to somebody, but don't leave here with unanswered questions about your eternity. Let us pray. Father, as we move into a time of reflection, we we ask that your Holy Spirit would would take your word and work it into our minds and hearts, bring conviction where it's necessary and bring comfort where it's necessary, correct our thinking where necessary and grant us clarity regarding what you require of us as we leave this place. We ask in Jesus' name.